Thanks for tuning in to Culture Car ATX. I'm your co-host, Michael Ward Jr., here with Donald Scott II. Our goal at Culture Crawl ATX is to change the world one conversation at a time. We hope you enjoy this episode. So today we wanted to come together with very interesting perspectives on food insecurity. And I know when some of you all think about food insecurity, you're probably not exactly sure what do we mean by that. But one of the things that we wanted to bring about is the fact that not everybody has the same privilege and access to food depending on the country they live in, their zip code, their ethnicity, how much money they have in their bank, or just what opportunities are around them. You know, here in Mainer, where I live, the nearest grocery store, quote unquote, the grocery store is Walmart. Um, outside of that, we do have a local grocery store. Um, that's the Mainer grocery store, but then the, the items there are very limited and doesn't provide us with the same options as some of the larger um, stores that we have here, such as HEB, um, and depending on where you are, you may have a, a Publix, you may have a Kroger, Trader Joe's, um, depending on what part of the other country you live in. But ultimately, when we think about food insecurity, it really comes down to what are we doing um, for our fellow citizens, fellow residents, fellow neighbors to make sure that everybody in our community actually have the food that they need, regardless of their air, their age, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of where they live. And we realize, unfortunately, here and here in America, we don't promote uh, food opportunities. We don't, we don't promote food stability. And we definitely don't promote healthy living across the board. Um, some of you may disagree with that, but at least from my perspective and what I see, it's a lot of fast food. There's a lot of, of meat, a lot of dairy, a lot of um, anything outside of fruits and vegetables and what we can grow our own. Um, so today, of course, I have my, my co-host, Donald Scott II. We also have another guest as well as we talk about food insecurity to really start to, to pick your brains about what that really means. Um, so given this last, uh, this last year, right, this last year and a half, we've seen the spread of COVID-19 really exacerbate the problem around food insecurity. And we, we begin to see how much of a privilege just having access to quality food has been. Or, or even today still is. Um, so I'm really curious, what are your perspectives when you, when you even think about food insecurity, what comes to mind for you all? Go ahead, Donald. Cool, yeah, I'll jump in. Um, I'll jump in probably with a, with a handful of topics just to get them out and then, um, and then we can let the conversation, you know, twist and turn. But uh, when we first, when, when you first mentioned talking about food insecurity, my, my initial response was, I don't know if I can speak on that because I don't think about it very often. Um, but then I took the kids to the doctor here just a couple days ago. And, uh, and one, of, one of two questions on the questionnaire said, um, you know, is this true? I do not have enough money to buy the food that my family needs? Or is this true? Uh, we have food, but we don't have enough money to buy more when, we, when it runs out. And, um, and I never thought of the access to food as a healthcare issue until then, like literally on Friday that just passed. Um, but now, right, that I'm thinking about it, uh, 
And then, you know, our, our little previous conversation about pulling food out of the garden, right? Like even if that zucchini can't be eaten, it's test and go. So you, you let your zucchini grow as big as it can, then you eat it and you're like, oh, this is terrible. But at least it came out of your garden. It came from some seeds. You didn't have to go buy it necessarily. Um, and so that's a, that's a sense of food independence, which Michael, you just touched on relative to, uh, you know, the fast food industry and, and the food industry in general. Uh, I actually just, and like I said, this is going to be a, a whirlwind right here, but I also just went to the, to get my annual physical and the doctor asked me if I was prepared for a colonoscopy. <clears throat> and so I was like, I'm not sure, but let me ask my family. And, um, and my mom said, she's not getting one because they make you drink a lot of chemicals to get it. And then she followed up with, but we don't eat fast food anyway. And so it doesn't matter. And, um, and then I, you know, I was, this is a kind of a shout out to my homies, but <laughs> so I'm gonna call them out. And if they listen, they know I'm talking about them. A, a handful of other guys were talking about, um, getting five guys delivered from Grubhub, right? And the, the idea that, that they only order a small fry because, because five guys is known to put extra fries in the bag. And, and I've been to five, I haven't been to five guys in a while, but I know that that food be hella greasy. Um, and, then, and then this is the last probably little point, relative to COVID, when the kids didn't go back to school, not only were we concerned about their learning, but that's when a big conversation came up and people learned that most children are fed at their schools, both breakfast and lunch, and many of them don't have dinner at home. And so if you close the school, the, the biggest probably um, challenge and, and the most efficient, the, the greatest work that I think that the school district did was getting food out to this community uh, for breakfast and lunch. But then, and now this is where we come into like, not only food insecurity, but then the ability to decide that I don't want that food. We stopped going to get the free food and decided to pay instead, right? Because we have the money, which, is, which in and of itself is a luxury. But it was because the food that they were serving wasn't healthy, right? It was chicken nuggets, chicken burger, meat burger, pizza. Uh, with, with, yes, there were vegetables, but it was clear that these vegetables were sketchy at best. Um, and, in, and in any case, my kids eat vegetables and they wouldn't eat these vegetables. So I know that kids who don't eat vegetables weren't eating them anyway. And so like this whole conversation around access to quality food is much broader if you take time to think about it but it's also easy to ignore, going back to my original statement, it's easy to ignore when you have easy access to the food. You just assume that everyone else eats. Um, and so, you know, this will be, this, it's been eye-opening for me just looking at my lifestyle in preparation for this conversation. That's great. This is, I'm, I'm scribbling down some notes as we're talking because there's a bunch of stuff I'm really excited to to go back and touch on and, and dive into, I will say um, I'm with you there on the colonoscopy. I'm I am figuring out who I'm going to get to to drive me home after they anesthetize me. But uh, definitely encourage you to get it. Uh, better to get it than to to 
find out later all the things that you could have learned if you'd gotten it. Um, they no, do I think the last... you can send in a stool sample, actually. So you don't have to do a colonoscopy. You can send in a stool sample. And then if they oh, find no. something... Wait, see, now, now you're dropping some knowledge that I need yeah, to... They, no, they go, <laughs> but, but we can go. That's, that's another conversation. <laughs> but, so, so the last thing you said was really great. That You know, talking about how everybody eats, everybody... Uh, but, but it's but most of us don't think about, um, you know, what does food insecurity mean? What does it mean to me? Um, is this a situation that I have uh, have had before or, or currently have? And I think a lot of folks, uh, you know, to your point, um, they may say, well, sure, I can, you know, I can go to the grocery store and get my groceries. Um, but am I struggling to make rent? Am I struggling to keep my utilities on? Did I have to downgrade my lifestyle because... I'm unemployed or because I've been laid off or because my hours are reduced or because my wages are stagnant. What are all these other ways that, you know, if I had the resources that I needed uh, to make sure that I could put food on the table consistently and, and, and make sure that I'm able to have the food on the table that I want, you know, my kids, my family, myself to be eating, you know, and, and some of that may be for flavor. Some of that may be for nutrition. Some of that may be for expediency, right? Especially, especially with kids I'm looking for, how do I, how do I make some, some cheap, healthy, quick meals. And it's hard to juggle all three of those, right? It's hard to get that, that three-legged stool to stand straight. Um, especially this last year with the pandemic, so many people, um, and you know, we really saw this in a lot of the, the food access work we did locally here uh, initially right after the pandemic and then throughout this last year. And then uh, this last spring with the winter storm, Uri, uh, seeing how many people um, you know, have never uh, experienced food insecurity or have never realized that they were uh, you know, having, having, having difficulty getting the food that they, that their body needs, uh, you know, one medical issue, uh, a job loss, a family emergency, you know, downturn in the economy, a pandemic, all these different ways, people that are, are right on the other side of the line where they don't, they've never had to access those types of resources and those types of services that have been available. Um, and, uh, to people, uh, you know, as, you're an American citizen, you're, or, or you're someone in America, right? And, and you are a human being and you have the right to food because food should be a right. And so how can we make sure people have that? A lot of people never had to access that. And so then when this happened with the pandemic, we had so many people who um, were having difficulty putting food on the table and they didn't know where to go. They didn't know their local pantry. They didn't know, uh, you know, the church or the, the rec center or the community organization, the nonprofit. Um, that's in their community or their zip code, uh, you know, or, or their faith community um, that was there and available for them. And so it's, you know, a big part of it. And I think, uh, you know, I think we can go back and, and touch on this because I'm sure Michael has some thoughts on it. But one of the things that I've really learned this last year is that it's, uh, you know, things like food justice, food access, food equity are tied up with digital access and equity and communication access and equity, language access and equity. If I can't access the information about how to access the food, I can't access the food. You know, so that's just one part of how is a better food system? How's a better future food system for our entire community? How does that incorporate things like digital access and mobility access? You know, to Michael's point, I was, I was kind of surprised. Michael, I knew you lived down there in Mainer, but I'd never looked at the map and, and you know, drawn it out. And you're about 15 miles from downtown I'm straight north of downtown about 10 miles. So I'm not that much further. You're not that much further out than me. And, and we really even less as the bird flies, right? If you look at the map, but the, the, the density of options that are in North Austin along the 35 corridor is totally different than they are in Maynard, which is, you know, I'm, I'm sure if you get out to Elgin, 
right? It looks even more different. And so thinking about how we can you know, plan better food systems uh, and increase the access for communities so that everyone has the ability to access those same good foods or to your point as well, Michael, the, you know, the ability to access the information to grow your own food, right? Access the resources uh, that, that you need to get that started and be successful in that endeavor. Um, I think those are all things that are super important. And, um, you know, especially I've got, we've, we've got our, our, our first kiddo, three-year-old, um, you know, she's going to be starting her preschool programs this fall. And so school lunches, kids lunches, you know, that's something that um, I'd never really thought about until this last year. And some of the work we did with helping kids in the, in the local community access food when the schools closed, you know, like you said, there are a lot of kids who, um, you know, rely on, on school lunches to, for, for them to get some of the food during their day. And, in the best of times, right? When the when those resources aren't available, whether it's on a weekend or, you know, for uh, a week in the summer when the district shuts down, you know, those in the best of times, you know, there, there are a limited number of resources for families to access. But um, this last year during the pandemic, you know, there were tens of thousands of kids that didn't have access to meals that were, you know, sometimes, like you said, sometimes these were, uh, you know, one of two or, or the meal of a day. Um, and so it, it was, it's been really powerful for us as an organization, as a, as a, a nonprofit with little herds to, you know, be thinking about how we think about food insecurity from a global perspective, whereas before all this, uh, and, and we can get into this, you know, we started our journey farming mealworms in my closet to, to learn about how insects could be a way to address food insecurity on a global level. Uh, and then after this pandemic to have the perspective shift so much. You know, we, we like to joke before the pandemic, we were uh, uh, helping people eat insects. And after the pandemic, it was, we're just helping people eat, period. Uh, you know, how those two things are tied together and how things like uh, childhood nutrition, childhood education and family education about nutrition, about gardening, about cooking, uh, and then recognizing, you know, there was a great article the other day from an awesome journalist uh, in Forbes about, you know, the, the labor and the work, the unpaid uh, mental energy and physical energy that goes into cooking and shopping and chopping and preparing and cleaning when we're talking about good food, right? We have this, uh, a lot of people might have this sort of anachronistic vision of like, you know, good family food. And a lot of times that has, has never taken into account the people or the systems, um, you know, that, that were behind the scenes, making those kinds of things possible um, for a small group of people, uh, you know, that was then amplified through uh, radio or television or now social media uh, as sort of this baseline expectation of this is what everyone should be able to do. But no, a lot of people don't have those resources. They don't have that access. They don't have that time. They don't have that money. They don't have that privilege. So what can we do to make sure everybody does have access to it? So I'm excited about this conversation. Yeah, and as I, <clears throat> as I just kind of hear you go, go back and forth and kind of just give an overview RNA, a couple of different things that come to mind for me. And one of the main things that come to mind is that I'm starting to see the food in the food industry be very similar to our education industry. And what I mean by that is at first, at one point, you know, education was free, right? Everybody could do education. Y'all got to do is learn something, right? You got a book, someone could show you something, teach you something by all means, knowledge was free. Same, very similar with, with food, right? You could grow your own things. All you need is the, the actual seeds, plant it. By all means, there you go. But we've, we've transitioned away from things that are free to now 
being able to charge people for a better quality of service. And now the other things that are actually quote unquote free, now the quality of that is actually not what you want it to be. So therefore you actually don't want anything free. You actually want to be able to afford to pay for this quality experience. But then what we've realized that the quality experience now doesn't meet the same standards across the board because you could pay for fast food, but paying for fast food is very different than paying for a vegan, vegetarian, all organic meal that came from who knows where, right? So well, yeah, I, I can pay for, you know, uh, and it's funny, healthcare is similar too, right? Right, yeah, exactly. Because a long time ago, the the role of the doctor, the healthcare provider, the the medicine person in the community, that was a community role, right? It was a, a community supported role. And and at least in, in you know, our culture in, in Austin and Texas and in the US that has ra- radically shifted in the same way that you're describing, right? Where education and food have become commoditized markets as opposed to community, you know, goals. Yeah, and that's where I see that we need to revert back to that community goals. And I like the way that you framed it because that to me seems like the solution and kind of the, the, um, the hidden gem is that a lot of the things that we're doing now just creates more division and more barriers within our community versus allowing the community to take care of themselves. And I'm so focused on the community aspect because once again, you know, I live here in Maynard. I got cows and horses at my neighbors and literally right across the street from me is nothing but a cornfield that I could, that I know could probably fit, could probably feed half of Maynard, right? I'm not an agriculturalist. So, you know, please don't, don't, uh, don't um, stick me to my <laughs> numbers, but I see nothing but fields and fields and fields and fields of corn. And I'm just like, oh, this is beautiful, right? Like I'm looking at all of this that was made, but yet we still subsidize our farmers, but yet certain people literally, you know, downtown are now, you know, homeless, not being able to get the food that they need. And then there's other in other places that are throwing away quality food. So it, it's just a disconnect. Mm-hmm. It's just a disconnect between what options are actually available, what needs to be done and the means to do so. Because it's, in my personal opinion, I and mean, Arya, you're the expert in this, I'm definitely curious your thoughts, is that there's plenty of land, there's plenty of space. We can grow predominantly everything that we do need. Therefore, why do we have these food insecurities still continuously to play the same role or play within the system instead of us being more proactive and more understanding of breaking down those systems to go back to community goals or community-oriented where an area provides for itself regardless if it's food healthcare, work etc well i'll say that i i don't think i would call myself an expert on that but i i think i've had the the, the good fortune to to talk to a lot of folks who are experts in in these kinds of areas and um you know i think the the some of the the big pictures you're you're painting as i'm listening um are you know are can can be going back to uh, this last century, and both sort of the um, the 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 move the shift uh, in terms of of the amount of agri- the way the, the the role that agriculture played in our society from let's say the beginning of the 1900s to the to the turn of the century, um, you know, it was a much larger percentage of the population that were growing food, and as technology and automation, um, you know, better engineering, chemical engineering, as all of these things have advanced. We've had to have, uh, we've we've needed fewer people to produce just as much food, um, and I think to one of the points you you alluded to, you know, uh, some of the studies I've seen say that we already grow, you know, globally 
enough food to feed the entire planet. It's just that so much of that food is underutilized or wasted. I, I don't like to say wasted, but it's just not used efficiently. You know, it's, it, it is left in the field or it is, um, you know, left uh, as a byproduct. It is, uh, you know, not sold and then discarded or we purchase it, right? As, especially here in the U.S., there's a lot of um, acceptable waste in our food culture. You know, if I buy stuff and it sits in my fridge and then I never cook it. That's food that could have, you know, could have fed someone. And there's a lot of waste and value there, both for my pocketbook and both for the local community and local economy. Um, but, but going back, you know, we have over this, this last hundred years, we've seen this big shift from, you know, the amount of people that were farming to now, it's just like, I think it's like 3% of the, the you know, population works in food production. Um, and so that's, that's a huge shift and a big part of that shift, the ability for us to collectively uh, be able to produce so much food with so few people and with so much, so, so much less labor. Um, is because we have, a, you know, we have an economy that allows negative externalities to be, um, you know, uh, sidestepped by uh, a, a lot of producers in the name of industry. You know, so if I'm a, a farmer using conventional agriculture, I can, uh, you know, use underpaid labor that's migrant labor from another country. I can use chemicals that, uh, you know, I can put on my crops and and that. You know, studies show have negative consequences. I can, I can do, I can keep all these animals in tight space and I'll get, I'll be able to raise more animals, you know, at a, at a cheaper cost for a higher profit margin. Um, and those kinds of things have become sort of acceptable. And, and as a, a, your average consumer still has this very antiquated, outdated old McDonald, old McDonald sort of mentality of what farmers do, what their jobs look like, what the, what it looks like, where our food's coming from, right? You can look out across the street and see corn and you can you know look down the street and see cattle in, in uh, a farmer's pasture land and and that's even much different than how agriculture looks in a lot of places in the country where it's very concentrated um, and a lot of those externalities end up being put on the consumers and the consumer's health through food that is not as nutritious or food that is overly processed and has high amounts of sugar high amounts of sodium high amounts of uh, you know, um, non-sugar sweeteners that are sp very specifically designed, right? Food that is very specifically designed um, to want us to eat more of it because of its sugar and because of its salt and the way that that plays on our, our you know, uh, receptors inside us. Um, there, there's all of that. And, you know, at the same time, if we put that energy towards producing more good quality food, we would we would have enough. It just wouldn't be quite the same profit margin. It wouldn't be quite as lucrative. Um, those same companies have been able to, you know, put the negative externalities of the water usage onto the community or the, the, the runoff from their manure or their crop spraying into the local water tables or into the Gulf where it's now destroying the ecosystem. So, and, and, you know, part of this has been that we've had policymakers that have allowed these things to become policy, allowed businesses to, uh, offset their costs and increase their profits by putting these negative externalities onto the population, onto the taxpayers, onto the environment, and onto the consumers. Um, and I don't wanna, I don't wanna sound like farmers are the enemy because they're not most farmers. You know, the vast majority of farmers are, um, you know, they're, they're working hard, they're trying to get by and, and they're, they're not given the resources they need. They're not, you know, making, uh, the, the money that they should for the work that they're doing 
because we have a few small companies at the top that are aggregating all of those profits and aggregating all of that wealth. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge systemic issue and I, I don't claim to be able to speak to all of it, but it's, but I, I do know, you know, the conversations I have, it's all connected, right? The, the way that, um, the way that black farmers and farmers of color have been excluded from resources or had their land taken from them, you know, systematically, the more I learn, the more I read, the more I see how that is integral, right? That's interconnected with um, the amount of farmers that can pass that wealth of their land to their family members versus farmers who've been forced to sell that land to a big corporation that's consolidated it and now can be acting in an exclusionary way. Um, so yeah, I think, I think I'm, I've veered a little bit off, but you know, the, you're raising some really good points uh, you know, about how we got to here. Um, but the thing that really excites me, the thing that, that makes me feel optimistic is that we can see a, a lot of the technologies and a lot of the innovations, um, the, the things like alternative proteins, things like uh, you know, new technological advancements in indoor and vertical agriculture, aquaponics, aeroponics, um, being able to have better soil management methods and regenerative farming methods where we can um, uh, increase the health of the soil and increase the amount of carbon that the soil can capture instead of depleting the soil. We can actually rebuild these ecosystems in a way that can make them just as productive by acknowledging that there are these negative externalities and we need to be conscious and intentional about how we deal with those and not just foist those on other people. Um, so, you know, I'm excited about the, where we're going both on like a local level, you know, and, and here in Austin, we have a, uh, Austin and the surrounding area, um, especially Travis County, we have a, a very uh, um, forward thinking, progressive uh, uh, folks at the city and the county when they think about food and food access and the, not to say there's still not a lot of work that needs to be done, but I think there's a lot of people that are interested in seeing that work be done. And a lot of folks that have already started doing that work, folks, you know, here in the local food system, folks like Karen McGinn and, and Joy Chevalier on the, uh, the Austin Travis County Food Policy Board. Uh, you know, these are private citizens who give their time to look at the local food system, the local food policies, and, and make recommendations to the council members for how to, uh, you know, make it less burdensome for a food pantry to be able to get the permits they need to be able to, to safely provide food to people without having to worry about getting fined or getting sued or, or, or just not doing it because it's too burdensome in the first place. So there, you know, there's, there's really great stories from this past year, from even you know, the, the winter storm of uh, community groups who are stepping in. Sister Christina Muhammad with 10,000 Fearless First Responders, you know, great example of a group that is, has uh, for a long time, you know, been very frontline boots on the ground in communities uh, during disasters or during times of need. And, and right in line with how, you know, what y'all are talking about, growing your own food, um, better understanding how to, you know, can or preserve your own food so that you are better prepared as a person or as a family, um, so that you're in a better position to help your neighbor when there's a, uh, an emergency, when something happens. You know, there are groups like this, and, and I think we're, um, we're moving towards a space where those groups are better recognized, are better resourced, and are, are better able to uh, provide that knowledge and that foundation to the community so that we can, you know, collectively uh, uh, make sure that people can eat because everyone should be able to eat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree with you on that. And a couple of things that I'm hearing and tell me if, I, if I'm hearing something different. So one is definitely 
technological advances has been a good thing, but can also be a bad thing depending on how you use it like anything, right? Uh, but definitely technological advances has allowed us to not need so many farmers in order to provide enough food um, for residents, for citizens, and for members of the country. Um, that's and, what. And with that, with that pin, you know, because I had this conversation just the other day with with a family member, and the uh, GMOs is a really great example of that. If you think, you know, it, it, and especially, you know, I'm I'm mid thirties now, thirty six, and so I remember when GMOs was like this big conversation in the nineties of like Franken foods and really scary, um, and I bought into it for a long time. And the more I did my research later on and, and read a lot about it, there really were the original genetically modified organisms that were used for producing particular uh, amino acids and particular raw materials. There were some really dangerous corners that were cut and there were a lot of products that went to market that should never have gone to market. And people were hurt and people died because of profits and, and wanting, you know, people wanting to make more money and being willing to be unsafe to do that. Um, the, the way that foods are genetically modified today using CRISPR technology is just so drastically different than how it was done even, you know, two decades ago. And so it's, but in, in the popular culture, there really hasn't been a lot of understanding about that difference. And so, you know, GMOs are a tool like a hammer. I can, I can build a house and, and, and shelter a family with a hammer, or I can, I can hurt someone with a hammer. And so, you know, with, with GMOs nowadays, when I see uh, a product that's GMO, I'm not concerned with it being genetically modified because the way that they modify the organism, um, I, at least I believe from, from the science that I've read, is genuinely safe for me and for my family. Um, what I'm concerned with is the fact that that genetic modification, depending on what it is, it might just make you know an apple flavored pineapple or it might make a grain of rice that has more beta carotene or it might make a plum that can survive a drought. But it also might make an ear of corn that I can douse in an insecticide or a fungicide and it'll survive. And then there's gonna be that residue on that food when it gets to my plate and it gets to my child's mouth. And that's where I'm concerned. And so, you know, it is, and it's important to, to recognize that it is really confusing for consumers and intentionally so. Companies that are, are selling the, the, the cheapest, unhealthiest stuff are the ones that are putting a ton of money into, into their advertising. So it's really confusing for consumers to, to eat well and eat healthy and eat sustainably. And a lot of times it's, it's, you know, it's a privilege too, because it is more expensive to eat things that have been grown locally or, uh, you know, have been grown organically or have been, you know, the eggs at, at HEB that are pasture raised instead of raised by chickens in cages those eggs are going to be more expensive. And so, you know, as a consumer, we can, I can choose to, to eat fewer eggs of better quality. Um, and that's a choice I can make, but you know, there's, uh, it's, it's important to recognize that the, you know, we can't expect other people to make the changes that we're able or willing to make, um, because the situation, their situation is not going to be the same as ours. And so it's gotta be a meeting people where they are helping them understand and then encouraging them to, to make those changes that are, are the right fit for them in their situation. Yeah, and then that leads into the other two things I was gonna mention is one is, a, is an increased awareness and understanding around food and what we actually should be eating and putting in our body and how to grow it. Um, and then being more engaged on the policy side to make sure that the policies also align with that mm -hmm. because you, you, you mm -hmm. kind of noted it, it on the head where 
there are certain labels where I, I forgot where I read this up, but you can't trust everything that's written on the label because of some standards of I forgot what it what it was laying in and laying out. But pretty much based on the on the standards that we have around food, they're based on just the standards themselves. That is what creates a lot of these issues or potential opportunities to cut corners because the mm -hmm. policy itself provides that as an option to begin with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, and it's a mix of, you know, for instance, I can put natural on my product. That has no definition. That's, there's no legal requirement for me to do anything to make my product natural. I can call it natural all day long. Uh, but there's so I can't call it organic unless it's been certified. But just because it's been certified organic, that doesn't mean that it's healthy. It might still be loaded with sugar and salt. It's just going to be loaded with organic sugar. It, and you know, so there's all these different ways that you can use labels and make it sound like a product is great, even if it's not that great. You know, something can be plant based or vegan or kosher. Doesn't mean it's healthy. Doesn't mean it's sustainable. You know, and and it's it. it you know, going back to it, it is uh, not everybody has the time or the ability or the, the inclination to be able to peel back all those layers of the onion, right? Uh, and it's an, and and that's one of the things I personally advocate is for is, is for better policies around regular, you know, labeling clarity and consumer clarity and um, you know uh, responsibility of companies to. <laughs> be proactively genuine instead of, you know, it being a, a very reactionary thing of, you know, a, a company can um, make all these claims about something that's not healthy and, you know, get fines that are, are a fraction of a percentage of their profits. That, that doesn't incentivize them to change their behavior at all. That incentivizes them to keep doing that same bad action. Um, and, and, you know, Texas, in a lot of ways, is great for food businesses. In a lot of ways, it also is restrictive on those kinds of policy advancements. You know, because there are there are big companies that don't want those things to change because they make their money on fast food, because they make their money on soda, because they make their money on products that have a lot of corn syrup or palm oil or, or what mm -hmm. have you, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And just hearing you, I, I'm thinking about all the different things that are inside these foods that are not supposed to eat. And I'm not sure if you are um, familiar, if you heard of Dr. Sebi, um, the Hondurian doctor that had a very interesting perspective on a lot of the things that we eat. That is the problems with the diseases that we have. So all these, all these um, unnatural diseases that we really shouldn't be having in our body are coming because of the things that we're putting into our body that we really shouldn't be putting into mm -hmm. our body. Mm -hmm. um, so, so my wife and I, like, you know, we, we are, uh, I'm going to say that we are, I'm not going to say we're vegetarian or we're not, we're definitely not vegetarian, but we have significantly cut down how much meat that we eat in our body forward, and how much right? dairy. Plant exactly, forward, right? but not plant exclusive. There's exactly. a very dis big distinction there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I know. And we, we tie that to our faith, right? Because, you know, mm -hmm. we're, we're Christian. Mm -hmm. So for us, you know, we're supposed to eat from the earth and you can eat other things, but you just notice that there's a limit of how much you're eating other things outside of things that are from the earth, things that are natural, right? So in that aspect, yes, you know, I like what you said, plant forward. I like that a lot. Um, so definitely plant forward, you know, we try our best to drink nothing but water, but then again, you know, occasion, so we may have something here or there, but looking for, you know, what is the most um, purest thing that we can do that doesn't have anything extra added to it to create more issues. And if you do that for a while, you definitely see a difference in your body and how your body mm -hmm. adapts to what you're eating and what you're putting inside your body. 
Uh, but, but Donald, you've been, you've been quiet, so I'm going to pull you into the conversation. What, what is it you're thinking about uh, around food insecurity, just given the policies, the support, the lack of knowledge? You know, what are your thoughts so far? Yeah, this, is, this has been a um, deep conversation. Uh, and I, I think it's because food is so important. I've, I've also been scribbling notes and thinking about how I'm going to change some things. But um, one thing that came up earlier in the conversation was this concept of time and the effort to actually cook a meal. Uh, I have three boys <clears throat> and I'm, you know, I eat, my wife eats. So we're based, and then because we did homeschooling as, you know, as a function of COVID, we're, we are three meals a day times five people, right? So not only is that 15 meals that we're trying to cook and, and not include Domino's, Domino's. Uh, <laughs> I see you, uh, you I know, hear you. <laughs> as, as, many, as many fast food options as possible, but then also there's the time required to go to the grocery store ev you know, every three days. The bill is mm -hmm. enormous. Prices are going up. It's and, I mean, not uh, just inflation. And then there's also the dishes, right? So, um, <laughs> oh man, you got me with so dishes. That's, oh, that's man. the one I wrote because we've, we now make our oldest son do the dishes. And, uh, and it's become a, it's become an experience now, right? Cause I've been doing dishes for years. We have a dishwasher, but I told him he's got to learn to do the dishes. And now that he has to do the dishes, he sees how many times we are in the kitchen feeding them. Right. He's like, damn more dishes. And I'm like, yeah, this shit is all day. You know what I'm saying? It never ends. Um, and then, and then the other thing that I'm thinking though, is, uh, as we talk about policy, um, money, industry, people are hungry because we choose them to be hungry because access to food is actually political. And what I was mm -hmm. thinking is, mm -hmm. um, you know, just like there's this debate on, not even, I don't even know if it's a debate, but maybe I'll call it a um, emergency around encouraging people to vote to the best of their ability. We instead are creating restrictions on the opportunities for people to vote to the best of their ability. I think the same is true for people's opportunity to eat to the best of their ability. Um, Cause like in Chicago, uh, the conversation when I had probably has always been, but it was a very big conversation at the time. It probably still is, is the concept of this food desert, right? Where without a car, out mm -hmm. a decent amount of free time, you cannot get to a grocery store. And the only place where you can actually find food to consume is at the liquor store or the corner store. And the only food that they have is chips and pop. There's a, there's a great term uh, that's, that I've heard more uh, recently with, with some of the city and policy folks. There's food deserts where, you know, you, you can't get access to, to food, but then there's also food swamps mm. where you can get access to plenty of food. But you can't get, like Michael was saying at the top of the, 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 the conversation, you can't get fruits, fresh fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. You can't get, you know, dairy that hasn't been incredibly processed. You can't get lean proteins um, that aren't full of sodium. So mm -hmm. you can get your caloric intake. And, and again, you know, going back to the, the idea that we've shifted the way we think about food in the past hundred years, uh, you know, my grandmother came out of the Dep Great Depression kind of, kind of mentality where, um, the caloric number was all that mattered. If you were able to get the calories for the day, you were doing well because 
so many people couldn't. And that sort of mentality, you know, continued on into the, the idea that better, better living through science, right? If we can make these, you know, the, the kind of stuff that I saw in the grocery store aisle as a child, the thing like the frozen dinners, right? And, and meals of convenience. And, and it's amazing that our technology allows us to have all these processed foods that can be shelf stable or that can, you know, give you all your calories. Um, well, it turns out that's, you know, you can have, a, a, you can have someone who has plenty of food, but they may not, they may not be food insecure, but they are nutrient insecure, right? They have nutritional insecurity because the food that they have access to is not, is not healthy it, collectively. They don't have enough access to the things that they need, the diversity in the diet, the different vitamins and minerals and fats and proteins that our brains and our bodies need to be healthy. So, I mean, th th I'm, I'm loving that you brought that up. Yeah, and then, um, and if I think about the politics, actually, I remember uh, we were watching that show, Jamie Oliver. Actually, uh, wait, hold on. Quick thing, though, I wrote this down. Shout out to Backpack Friends, who um, supports getting uh, good meals out to kids. Um, I Definitely in Pflugerville ISD, but I think also awesome. in AISD and, um, and Round Rock ISD, partnering to ensure that, that the kids have meals to eat on the weekends and in the evenings. Um, so I, I actually, I've tried to volunteer, but <laughs> I haven't put any sweat equity in yet, but I did send some money. So, okay, fine. But, um, but I remember we were watching TV, that TV show with Jamie Oliver about making uh, fresh meals in the schools. And then I also though remember that they attacked Michelle Obama uh, and, the, and the nanny state when she was trying to say, yo, let's feed our kids something better than what we're feeding them. And the fact that she was attacked for trying to get decently fresh foods to children shows that there's a disconnect. No, I don't even know if there's a disconnect. There's, a, there's an agenda, right? There's an agenda mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. an industry and from, the, from a group that says, we do not want to invest in healthy foods for our children. And then from that swamp perspective, you know, I, I, if I not, you know, industry and, and um, not industry, uh, what do we call it? Um, uh, we have access to a lot of different options, right? And so we consider that to be a great neighborhood. It's good that you have all that food, but, but what we have is a, a Denny's, a McDonald's, mm. uh, a, um, who is that King's chicken or Cane's, Cane's chicken. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, plenty of, plenty of options for things that are, oil, but you know what I mean? Like we have salty all the or major, sugary or, yeah, yeah. Uh, all the major things fast taste foods right there for you. Um, mm -hmm. uh, in and out Burger, Whataburger. Mm -hmm. You know, you, if you can even, there's even a Whataburger at the gas station at the grocery store. Um, mm -hmm. And then you know, when we start talking about price, but, but these apples are $2 a pound. You know what I mean? So, so am I trying to, if I got to feed, <laughs> if I got to feed a whole family and apples are $2 a pound, but I can get a dollar cheeseburger from mm -hmm. McDonald's. Or, yeah, a, a pizza for the price of, of a bag of apples. You know, yeah. then, then now if I'm, if I'm, if I'm making my decision based on my financial position, I only have one decision. And it's the wisest decision is get this McDonald's burger. 
Because if I come in the house with an apple, <laughs> people are going to be pissed. Mm -hmm. uh, but so, you should have come in with the apple because it probably would have been healthier, right? But um, well, well, so well it, no, but right, the, the, it, that goes back to the policy problem. The reason why the cheeseburger is so cheap is because us as taxpayers, our mm -hmm. tax dollars are going to the companies that are allowing that to be so cheap. And, and, and we don't have a system that prioritizes making the apples cheaper and the cheeseburgers affordable so that we can have a cheeseburger once a week, right? I am definitely not a proponent of any sort of exclusion from people's diet because people eat things for a variety of reasons, whether it's cultural or religious or for flavor or for function or nutrition. And it's not my place to judge. If you want to eat a cheeseburger, you should be able to, but we should have a system that prioritizes resources so that we can all bring home a bag of apples with the cheeseburger, right? Yeah, right. A bag of cheeseburgers with, I mean, a bag of apples. <laughs> no, 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 you're right. A bag of cheeseburgers. That's exactly right. Because usually the conversation is one or the other. Am I going to eat healthy or am mm -hmm. I going mm -hmm. to get more calories? But I cannot afford both for the most See, part. And that goes back into the media, I would say, and the way that we tell this story that you have to choose, which is creating the vision between those that eat healthy and those that don't, which is very similar to like, oh, those that do private school and those that do public school or those that work out and those that don't work out. Right. Uh, those that have health care, those that don't. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're, you're so recreating all of these divisions within our communities, which is then make creating animosity towards somebody who is other. Right. Other than what you decided to choose or what you decide to follow so that now we start to judge people based on what they eat or what they don't eat, which just creates other issues down the road. So in this particular, right, exactly, right? So that goes back to who's ultimately benefiting from this because when it comes down to division and now you're just not knowing and because you're not knowing, now you're becoming ignorant. So because you're becoming ignorant, now you, now you are living in your bubble, which you know we've talked about in the past, Donald, we talked about it predominantly from a political sense, is that we live in political bubbles and don't provide opportunities to learn other perspectives, very similar to food, right? There are so many people who I know who swear up and down meat is the best thing for you. And I'm like, eh, time out. We should probably unpack that a little bit because there's really is documentation that says meat is not the best thing for you. Neither is dairy, right? I'm not saying you should exclude that from your diet. However, there's an understanding of what needs to be done and how you can do it. Um, one thing I did want to go back to was just the, the grocery store and coming home uh, with grocery and the cost of the grocery bill. And I've done this, but I, now I want to go back and really do it again and really bring, um, put some more numbers to it. But you can have a healthy meal that is affordable, but we're not conditioned to do that because you could get some spinach from Costco, a big five pound bag of spinach that could last you for about a week. You know, you have five, you know, you have a family of five. So I'm not sure how it's going to work for you because I got a family of two. Um, so me, a five pound bag of lettuce or a spinach, if I'm just using that for salads, that could last for about two weeks or so. But a big five pound bag of, of spinach, you got some tomatoes, you could do some corn, some beans, you know, whatever vegetables you like to add into your salad, you can add that to the salad. And now you have a nice, healthy or healthier meal to go with what you want to do. But how many of us actually eat salads, though? Right. <laughs> so that, that's yeah. where you know that what? question. <laughs> uh, what you're saying, too, for, is is as an adult. But I'm not I'm, this is going to be judgmental. So I'm, okay. I'm falling extremely into the into the um, cycle that you just mentioned about judging people's foods. But parents 
don't force or encourage or teach their own children to eat healthy. And so then, you know, I'm participating with other uh, students because I'm, you know, I may coach and then I can see based on what they bring as a snack or a meal or like nobody wants to drink water, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, I see this in their diet and then I see the child. And so people will make comments about the athletic ability of my children. But that athletic ability is actually a function of their weight. And their weight is managed because we have smoothies or, you know, we, we buy fruits and vegetables. So we go out of our way to, you know, find, like you said, go to Costco and get that spinach my kids eat spinach. I know a whole lot of parents that don't eat spinach. And so their kids definitely mm -hmm. not eat spinach. Mm -hmm. So they then are, you know, their pizza hut every day and Domino's the other day and, and wings and chips and fries and this. And then, you know, okay, now your kid is big. Uh, and I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. I, I can't have this conversation with you because it immediately becomes me judging how you feed your child, which could potentially be me um, uh, speaking about your financial situation. Because what we don't talk about is using your finances wisely as it relates to your food intake, because mm -hmm. we're constantly seeing McDonald's commercials. Mm -hmm. And it all and it all bleeds into like you know, the, the, the point made earlier, uh, and I, I'm, I forget if it was you, Don, or Michael, but the the lack of investment in kids' education, right? You can look at that in the lens of, of food, right? If the parent doesn't have the knowledge of what good food means, how to grow food, how to prepare food, how to shop economically, how to make meals affordably, um, you know, th then they don't, they're not able to pass that on to the kid. And if you're, you know, I can remember growing up, right? The, the kind of stuff that we were advertised in Saturday morning commercials. It's not good food. It's the tasty sugary stuff that sells and has a really high profit margin. And so we, if we don't invest in educating our children about this uh, or educating parents about it so that they can educate their children, in it, then it just repeats that, that vicious downward cycle. And the only people profiting are the people that are supplying the food to the Domino's and the, and the, the McDonald's. And so it, it, it just exacerbates itself. And the, uh, the other thing, Michael, you, you know, you, you brought up this point about the, 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 the way that y'all are making the choices about what you're eating. You know, I, I and, and then Don, I think you said people are hungry because we choose for them to be hungry. You know, I, I, these two things were, were connected in my head. Um, you know, one of the, the organizations I'll give a shout out to is Slow Food. There's a chapter in Austin, Slow Food Austin. And um, their motto is that food should be good, clean, and fair. And so by you choosing to eat less meat, let's, let's say less, less beef. If you're choosing to eat less beef because you recognize that it has both a, a health impact on your family, but also society, and it has an environmental impact on the planet, because if everybody ate beef all day, every day, we wouldn't have enough land to grow it all on. But by choosing to eat less, you allow more space for others to be able to have it once a week. We can have a system where everybody can eat a cheeseburger once a week, or we can have a system where some people get to eat cheeseburgers every day. And then a lot of other people don't 
have the option of eating eating that even eating that cheeseburger so you know don what you said people are hungry because we choose them to be hungry our choices influence they either expand or restrict the options for others on on sort of like a big global perspective Um, maybe it's next the person next door and maybe it's the person on the other side of the planet Um, but our choices can influence Oh, sorry. Um, I had a yeah, so call. it looks like um, we'll we'll close out here, uh, but I'll leave this one one final statement on on the concept of who's making the money. And uh, this can be one that folks can Google because it's popped up on my um, news feed a couple times, and maybe it's a little controversial. But Bill Gates, love it, <laughs> is the largest farmland owner in the United States, and his farm, the farmed food goes to the fast food industries, right? Um, And so I think that's pretty interesting if we think about what we know about the fast food industry and what it represents, and then the concept of the uh, political economic nature of food and what it means that Bill Gates, who is, you know, widely touted as the billionaire to be like, is making his money from selling dollar cheeseburgers to people who probably need to be eating apples and oranges, fruits and vegetables, as opposed to using his money to support more consumption of apples, oranges, fruits and vegetables. Uh, But, you know, I'm sure he does that too, right? I'm sure the Gates Foundation helps, but at the same time, if you're offsetting, who are you offsetting? Because I can afford the vegetables, but not everyone can afford to not have Popeyes every night. And do, and do we want to live in a world, right? And this is, you know, this may be a little controversial too and, and exp- reveal a little bit about my leaning, but, you know, we've been uh, collectively, there's been this story told by some folks in the country for, for decades that if we allow rich people to consolidate that wealth and be really efficient with that wealth and have a, 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 you know, a McDonald's. If we allow someone to make as much money as Bill Gates, then they'll create jobs and they'll create foundations and they'll do philanthropic things. And they do, they do do all those things. But that only addresses a little bit of the issue that is really coming from how they're making all that money, right? Going back to experience exporting those negative externalities, right? Your McDonald's make so much money because the land is so cheap that they're burning down in the rainforest to graze their cattle. And the, the, you know, the, the corn and the soy that's fed to their cattle is subsidized by our taxpayer dollars and sprayed with insecticides that then wash into local water tables and poison children. So these are the, the reason why they've been able to make so much money is because they've had the deck stacked in their favor. And they've been telling people, well, no, 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 just keep stacking the deck in our favor. Let us keep accumulating this wealth we'll be, we'll do good things with it, right? We'll help, we'll solve these problems. And it hasn't happened, it hasn't happened, it hasn't happened. Instead, I would love to see what our world looks like when we can have a system that addresses all those negative externalities, right? If I want a cheeseburger, I should be paying for all of the negative externalities instead of those being foisted upon my community or me as a taxpayer or the environment. In the same way that if I want to purchase a plant burger, if I want to have a salad, right? If we have a, a food system that really values things 
for their nutritional value and their resource cost, whether that's labor, time, chemicals, land, water, what have you, um, the way that we price foods would be very differently. And that would be a much more realistic market economy where things, where you as the consumer, right, have the choice to choose between goods based on your preferences, whether it's nutrition or flavor or cost or what have you, um, but we don't have that. So I, you know, I, I look forward to the day where we are moving towards that more uh, accurate reflection of the cost of these kinds of things so that, you know, the, the choices we're making, you know, some of the conversations, the, the things, choices we're talking about making here, right? The, the things we choose to eat less of or to, to uh, the, the, the choices we make at the grocery store for our families or for our kids, um, that, that it empowers us to make more of those better decisions and empowers more people to have access to make those decisions instead of having so many people that are forced um, to, to have their options restricted so that a very small number of people can, can continue to aggregate wealth. Mm -hmm. And RNA, what I can say to that is that I'm definitely willing to work with you on that. I think Donald's here as well and some of our listeners. Um, so for those that would like to support food, food um, security, um, please do what you can in your area. Please reach out to local organizations that are doing good work. And if you're here in Central Texas, you know, reach out to us and let's see what we can do together. And on that note, we thank you for listening and ask that you click that like button and subscribe to Culture Crawl ATX wherever you listen to your podcast. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and heard something you can take back to your friends and family. Please follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn. And remember, you can always find the latest episodes on culturecrawlatx.com.